Good morning, Desert Springs. The Saints of Christ Church do indeed send their welcome to you. Uh, we do miss you a whole lot. Uh, we've, always, we've often talked about church planting. It's kind of like a, a grown child leaving the house, going off to college, right? And if you, if you ever moved away to a different city for college, you became confident and you'd never really want to go back and live full time at mom and dad's house. But man, it sure is to, great to come home for Thanksgiving, right? To come home and sit around a warm dinner table and just be with your family. And this, this room uh, certainly brings a whole lot of warmth to my soul. Um, as far as Christ Church goes, praise the Lord for what he's doing in and through his people. For those of you who may have visited us, visited us on a Sunday, you might have seen more people there that you didn't know or recognize than the ones that you did. That's, this is happening this morning. We've been gone enough gone long enough that there are many of you that I don't know. It seems like just yesterday we were leaving, but much has happened since then. We've just wrapped up our fourth membership class, and after Lord willing, baptizing two, maybe three folks on Easter Sunday, we'll welcome 13 or 14 new members. We have nine small groups. We call them gospel communities. They meet all over town, not just in each other's homes, but they're intentionally moving towards and serving uh, the people in our city who would otherwise be on the margins of our society, the homeless, the materially poor, the widow, the orphan, the refugee, the international student, all of these we're doing together. We've got a young married couple right now who is visiting our partners in North Africa. They, with their nine-month-old son, they're spending two and a half weeks in North Africa considering whether they would be the first Christchurch family to join our SNAP partnership there. This would also be, by the way, our first Southern Baptist International Mission Board funded uh, missionaries to go. So it would be a lot easier for us to send uh, this go around, especially as a new church plant. So praise the Lord for what he's doing. We are having a blast and we'd love to see you sometime on a Sunday evening. You guys are in the home stretch of Acts here. Ryan asked me to spend a few minutes this morning thinking through the book of Proverbs. Ryan preached through the Proverbs in 2008, but even for those of you who were around then, you undoubtedly forgot everything he said. Uh, I certainly wasn't in Albuquerque then, and I was barely even alive. Uh, so uh, well, before beginning to think specifically about work, about vocation, about laziness through the book of Proverbs, I want to spend a few minutes to think about the Proverbs and wisdom generally itself. Proverbs is a book about wisdom, but what is wisdom? Sometimes think about it as knowledge, as understanding, perhaps even right behavior. And Tim Keller says that wisdom includes three things. First, insight, knowing how things really work. Prudence, knowing how things really are. And then, most importantly, knowing what to do with all that. Wisdom is about skilled living. A wise man is like an experienced sailor. He's been on the boat for a whole long time. He knows the winds that are coming. He knows when the winds change how to act and react. Like I can make a better paper airplane than my five-year-old can because I've just, you know, learned from many crash and burn paper airplanes that just nosedive or spin around, right? I, I've, I've understood the rules and norms of the world. And if you can figure out those rules and norms and then make decisions about those norms, things will usually go well. You'll fly. If not, 
perhaps you'll, you'll be like a college roommate of mine. There's four of us lived in the second floor of this apartment complex, and then four gals in our college ministry that lived above us. And one of my friends, he had a crush on one of the gals that was above us. And so we, not knowing what he was doing, he decided he wanted to make his intentions clear to this gal, so he bought a small potted lemon tree, like you do, and he, uh, he, he wrote a note telling how he felt about her. He put the note in the lemon tree, put it in front of their door, knocked, and ran. Uh, like, I don't have to tell you he didn't get the first date. Right? It did, he didn't understand the way that the world works, right? Uh, so what? Do we just expect to find a proverb for every scenario in our life, like, listen, my son, when, when courting after a young woman, only a fool will leave her a lemon tree and run. No, here, here's the thing. We can, we can know our Bibles from cover to cover. We can understand the Old Testament narrative. We can understand the poetic books and the prophetic books, and we can understand the Gospels, and we can understand the New Testament epistles, and even the end times literature, however much we can. But what verse are you going to turn to when you're thinking about, like, what job to take? What verse are you going to turn to where you should apply for college? Should you take that job? Should you date that guy or girl? Should you marry that guy or girl? Should you take this incredibly risky chance in your life? Most of these issues simply just require wisdom, where there might be multiple choices of equal moral value. There's no right or wrong answer, but there is a wiser answer. And letting the Proverbs begin to shape you into a person who is wise will make these kinds of decisions clearer, will make them easier, will make them more God-honoring. The Proverbs are short, pithy, memorable sayings that are meant to be memorized and then recalled throughout the entirety of our lives. They aren't absolute truths. There are parents who have trained up a child in the way that he should go, but nevertheless, he did depart from it. Perhaps you've experienced this painfully. As we'll see this morning, there are extremely hard workers who never do see big returns, but the Proverbs are observationally and generally true. Like, these are the ways that paper airplanes generally fly, and because I've observed them a lot in my life, uh, let me give you this advice. This is the way that things, that things generally go. They speak about wisdom and the pursuit of it a lot, but oftentimes there will be specific Proverbs that will talk about specific issues. And for that reason, it's good to think sometimes through the Proverbs topically, perhaps the only book of the Bible that that's a good thing to do. So this morning we're going to talk about an important wisdom issue, and that's work. And the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about work and laziness. So we'll think through all this by asking three questions. Three questions, and that is, how does God think about work? How do we think wrongly about work? And then how should we think about work? So how does God think about work? Harvard professor Andrew Delbanco opens his short little book, The Real American Dream, with this little bit of greatness here. He says, At the heart of any cohesive culture is a story that gives it hope, a story that helps us overcome the lurking suspicion that all our working and getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. In other words, we humans have to believe that we belong to some sort of meaningful story, something greater than ourselves. Otherwise, all we're doing is just twiddling our thumbs, waiting to die. 
And there are tons of competing American stories out there that vie to give us meaning. Work as hard as you can for as long as you can so that maybe someday you'll become someone that matters. Or life doesn't have any meaning, so just have as much fun as you can until you die. Or just follow your dreams and pursue your passions. This will give you meaning. I think these are all just ways to just fidget around, waiting to die. Fortunately, the larger book to which the book of Proverbs belongs is a grand and sweeping story that gives us far more, not only day by day, but eternal meaning. So let's think about work. Work is one of the very first small talk questions you ask, right? You meet somebody, say, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do, right? What do you do? We rightly or wrongly carry a lot of identity in what we do. A lot of this is because God didn't just create us just to sit around, to be, to exist, but he created us to do. How do we know this? Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1, 1, the very first words of the Bible in the beginning, which by the way is a very much kind of like a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away type of amazing intro to this grand epic story that we are about to embark on. And it's the story of our world that we live in today. But the first thing that we learn about God is that he created everything. He went to work. He created a perfect place to live with his people. And then we found out that he creates humans in his image. There are certain things about us that are meant to look like God. That work is good because work is godlike. And he calls us into to be co-workers with him, to work alongside him. Genesis 1.27, he told them, he tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God calls them to work, to form and to fill the earth. Humans are the only creature in all of creation that receive a command to multiply, right? Like rabbits, oak trees, God doesn't single them out. They just multiply. They just, they just do it, right? But humans are different. We don't just multiply and reproduce. When humans multiply, we multiply not just into other individuals, but into families, into neighborhoods, into cities, into cultures. Humans are to bring beauty. They're to bring order. And all of this is before the fall. Now, of course, the, the fall of Genesis 3 is coming. Some of you youth who remember when I was still around here, we talked about the pinch test of the Bible, that you could take the garden of Genesis 1 and 2 over on this side of your finger and then get over here to the other garden in Genesis or in Revelation 21 and 22 and then just then pinch out the rest and then everything in between my two fingers here explains our existence today everything all of this middle stuff tells of our current existence and all of this middle stuff is where the weeds now are trying to constantly invade your backyard. It's where the laundry just relentlessly tries to unfold itself. It's where things break and water heaters need to get replaced. There's death, there's sadness, there's toil. And all of this, in this middle section of the Bible, is where the Proverbs belong. But it's good to first remember that work is actually good before we get to our, yeah, but it's really hard kind of mentality. 
We tend toward thinking that there is work out there that gets me a paycheck. It's like a necessary evil in my life. But if I get really serious about my Christianity or something, then I'll go into full-time ministry or I'll become a professional missionary or something. But this kind of dichotomy doesn't exist in the Bible. In fact, you know who the very first person in the entire Bible is who gets filled by the Holy Spirit? It's a dude named Bezalel right? Uh, Don't know much about this guy other than he's the first person filled by the Holy Spirit. And why? Because he's a craftsman. He's a metal worker. He works with wood and he makes beautiful things to go in the tabernacle. Work is good. So this kind of thinking is what caused Dorothy Sayers, I think, to rightly say the only Christian work is good work well done. Or as Paul will say in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord, not as unto men. So, if this is what God thinks about work, that it is a good thing to cultivate, to create order, how do we wrongly think about work? Well, let's turn to Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26, a few verses here about the sluggard. Beginning in verse 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So the first way that we wrongly think about work is But the sluggard, he he doesn't see work as good, as a calling. There are several traits of the sluggard. First, in that first verse, he's making excuses. He's saying that there's there's a lion out there. That's why he can't leave the house. He's either lying to others and saying that there is something dangerous out there, or he's lying to himself to just like suppress this good, God given, God imaging desire to get out there and create, to cultivate, to work. We likely don't make the lion excuse, I think. I don't know of many people who say there's lions out there like walking around on Paseo or something. But to some degree, we're all sluggards. And therefore, we make all kinds of other excuses. As one writer says, we can make the exception excuse. This is an excuse that we often make, that I am an exception. I'm special. And I'm not like the others. Because I'm wise and reasonable, I see a bigger picture than the people who make the rule. I, in my judgment... Uh, The rules aren't exactly fair, so I think I'll just change them a little as they apply to myself and just not tell anyone. In other words, I am the main character of this story of my life. You all are all supporting characters, Uh, and so someone else should clean my room, should clean the kitchen or the garage, but not me. I'm I'm the main character, so I shouldn't have to contribute to the needs of this family. Since I'm special, I can just come home and turn on the TV or play video games or whatever it is while my roommates do all of the work for me, while my family does all of the work for me to provide for my every need and desire. Yeah, yeah, people I know, they shouldn't cheat on tests or cut corners on this project at work, but since I'm special and I'm an exception to what is right and wrong, it's really not that big of a deal for me to make this move. Or my kids, they deserve an excellent children's ministry or youth ministry at this church. But since I'm an exception and I don't need to contribute to the needs of the body, 
the body is there to contribute to my needs. I'll just take from what others peop- other people have for me rather than serving them. There's a lion out there. And he's preventing me from doing the work that I expect all of you to do for me. The only problem with this kind of thinking is that there's roughly about 7 billion people who are thinking the exactly the same way, right? And within three generations, here's the thing. Within three generations, no one's even going to remember your name. So I hate to be a downer here, uh, but you're really not an exception, even as quickly as we use that excuse daily. But we can also use a lowest common denominator excuse, which essentially takes the opposite approach, that everyone else is taking it slow. Why not me too? Because we're all in the same boat. We're all people here. I'm justified in being lazy because all of you are being lazy. None of my friends are serving in this area. None of my friends are diligently teaching the Bible to their children. All of my friends cheated on this test or didn't follow this rule, so I ought to cut corners there also. But Proverbs 10.2 says that treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. These kinds of short-term, corner-cutting decisions do not pay off in the long run. We'll continue to see why. So the sluggard makes excuses about scary lions out there. But second, he also shows no initiative. 26.14, as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard on his bed. Like a door on its hinges, he, he turns over and over and over, never getting out of bed. Here's the thing. When you go to bed at night, set an alarm. And then in the morning, when it, when it starts going off, get up. Uh, Proverbs 20, 13 says, Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. Not only is there just an increase in productivity that you could get done before the sun comes up, in praying and reading the Bible and reading books and exercising and doing a countless, countless other things around the house, right? But discipline with your alarm clock will just inevitably bleed into other areas of discipline in your life. When we cultivate discipline, when we cultivate denying my flesh, that what it wants, more sleep, and just get up and do something, that will also just translate into other areas of, of your life. Setting an alarm clock and obeying it, it matters. Or perhaps you are disciplined and about getting out of bed, but do you find yourself doing just the same simple, unproductive hinge squeaking activities just day after day, week after week, year after year. Look, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong about Netflix or about video games. And we'll see in a minute why we also need rest and perhaps need some so-called meaningless hobbies. But think about this as Proverbs 12, 11 says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Have areas of entertainment, have areas of hobbies, like taken over the pie chart of the hours of your week? Like, so that you have just a sliver, or perhaps even no time left, to pursue things that will help you actually grow? How have you grown in wisdom, in knowledge over the past year? How have you grown in creativity, or production, or in Loving others and then loving the Lord over the past year? Or are you just like a door 
stationary, swinging back and forth. The difference, of course, being that the door is actually fulfilling its God-ordained purpose. In Chariots of Fire, the character of Eric Liddell says, Jenny, you've got to understand. I believe that God made me for a purpose, for China. He's thinking about missions to China. But he also made me fast, he says. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. So the door might say, God has made me to open and close. And when I swing back and forth, I feel his pleasure. I'm doing what my job is, my, what he has created me for. So here's a question for us. Do you, do you feel throughout your week God's pleasure in what you do? Remember, though, the, the only Christian work is good work, well done. So we ought to feel immense pleasure as we make an excellent latte for a customer or we write an especially useful line of code. It ought to give us pleasure. But are we feeling God's pleasure in initiating, in creating, in, in growing in wisdom and in the love of God? A sluggard doesn't initiate, but a third trait of a sluggard is that he cons- consistently fails to complete his tasks. 26.15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. He can't even finish the simple act of eating. It's too tiring. Perhaps he gets distracted. Facebook, TV, video games, some project that you're working on, but then some other competing distraction uh, pulls you away from what you're doing. Start something and then finish it. Like that project around the house. Like that, that book that you've been reading or that Bible plan that you've begun this year. Start it and finish it. All of these are forms of good work that God has given us to cultivate, to beautify, to bring order to the world where the chaos only wants to creep in. So ultimately in all of these things, the sluggard, he, he doesn't see work as good, as God imaging, as necessary for the good of creation. He just sees it as a necessary evil. The thing that he has to do during the week so he can make enough money if he, has, if, if, he, if he needs it, so that then he can just get to the weekend where he can really live. Nothing more than just fidgeting while he waits for death. Do you see your areas of work, your areas of calling as necessary evils, just biding your time until you can finally get out of your parents' house? Biding your time, working just hard enough in college to get uh, the degree, to have a decent resume, just working hard enough to get the next promotion or the next or better job, just working until retirement, until now, finally, I can live. But the Bible and the Proverbs are teaching us that work is not a necessary evil, but it's good because God calls us to it. Think about that word vocation itself. We tend to think about a vocation as the place we go and we put in hours so that we can receive a paycheck. But the word vocation comes from the Latin word vox, voice, as in the voice of God and where he calls you, where he beckons you and places you by his voice. Wherever you are today, this is your vocation. This is where God has called you. And if God has called you there, then bloom where you're planted. Wherever he's planted you and put you there, then do it excellently for his glory. That's not to say that you should never change jobs, that he plants you there for eternity or something. Some of you may not even have jobs. But perhaps you mid-school students, you younger kids, you're thinking, I, I don't even know what this guy's talking about. This is, I'll, I'll go back and listen to this sermon in 10 years when I get a vocation, right? 
But here's the thing. You have a vocation. You have many vocations. You have a vocation as a son or a daughter or a sister or a brother or a student or an athlete. These are all vocations that God has called you to. So do it for the glory of the Lord and for others. Work hard. Bloom there. Perhaps you're in a really mundane job that you just can't, you're struggling to find meaning and purpose there. But is your job providing a service to others? Is it helping to cultivate order, push back the chaos? Is it just simply not causing others to sin? Then it's good work and bloom there as long as God has you there. I was trying to remember and think through many of you who are here at Desert Springs and just think through all of the vocations, all the callings that I could and remembering all of you. And here's what I came up with. This is incredible. There are scientists here. There are financial advisors. There are business owners and entrepreneurs. There are pilots. There are full-time stay-at-home moms. There are teachers. There are restaurant owners and food service workers. There are carpenters and musicians, landscaping and programmers. There are engineers and home builders. There are some of you who are in full-time ministry. There are salesmen and mechanics. There are students and stylists. There are church members. How about that as a vocation? There are lawyers and realtors and on and on and on and on. This is amazing that God has gifted just this small gathering and collection family of people with such diverse and amazing skills to bring order to the city of Albuquerque, to push back the chaos, and to make this place a better place for humanity. Amazing. A few months ago, I, I ran to, to Target to get a few things, and as soon as I turned my car off, I heard the noise. There was this huge, loud noise. I first heard the jackhammer. As I approached the, right in front of the sliding doors, there's one guy over here with a jackhammer. There's two other guys over here with a wet saw. They're cutting a giant square in the concrete right in front of the sliding doors. This older lady was approaching. She was approaching like this, just trying to get through as quickly as she could with as little distraction or noise as possible, but I loved it. Like, I wanted to go, like, ask this guy to put his jackhammer down so I could give him a big high five. There's chaos under that parking lot. I don't know what was going on, but there was some reason uh, that they needed to tear this whole thing up. And just like God told Adam to work and keep the garden, I wanted to just say over the noise, just Way to go, fellas. Like, way to work and keep that parking lot. You guys are doing excellent work. This is the work that God has created for us, wherever he's called us, to do it excellently. And by the way, this kind of thinking about vocation is certainly helpful for those of you who are nearing retirement age or are perhaps already in retirement. You might have retired from one vocation where you received a paycheck, but you have a new one. You have a new vocation. And God has called you to this new stage of life with an increased opportunity to serve your church, to serve your city. Your opportunities for discipleship are far greater and far freer than when you had to be at work from eight to five every day and when you had small children vying for your attention. Bloom where you're planted. Even now in this new vocation, God has given us the job to work and keep wherever we are, to work and keep the areas of dominion that he has given us. Proverbs 27, 23 says, know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. 
Here's a question for us. Where has God delegated his authority, his dominion to you so that you as like a sub-ruler might govern and have good God-honoring, cultivating dominion? Some of you might be partners or CEOs of your company. Some of you might have dominion over papers and midterms. Some of you might have dominion over your children and your homes, raising them in the knowledge of the Lord. But the reality is, is that God has given you dominion over all of these areas of life for his glory, for his good, for the good of others, for you to be growing in wisdom and knowledge of him. One of my seminary professors in writing to young men says this, what is your locker, garage, closet, or desk look like? While most of us have a messy desk or car trunk on occasion, a life that is consistently characterized by disorder is evidence of a general pattern of passivity in the domains God gives you to work and keep. Your home, dorm room, garage, office, and car should bear the mark of your masculinity as you subdue it and keep it in order. Don't let your domains take dominion over you. A clean desk or organized garage doesn't constitute dominion, but it cultivates it. And it helps you take the same mindset to your family life, your work, and the world around you. How are you cultivating the inclination to order your world? That's really helpful. And I can imagine some of you hardworking parents out there who like clean houses are like, yeah, I like this preacher. I want him to come back and maybe come over to my house and like yank my teenager out of bed and tell him to clean up his room. But before you become so glad that Others are here to hear this sermon. Uh, let's not be so quick to ignore our own hearts as well. Just as we can wrongly think that our work doesn't matter, it's okay to be lazy, that all of this is just fidgeting before death anyway, it's a necessary evil, perhaps, to allow me to live. Well, certainly as Americans, we can tend toward the opposite end of the spectrum as well. And thinking that I am nothing more than my work, that my work, my vocation, is what makes me who I am. That unless I'm not doing excellent work, then I am no one. Our entire life, certainly as Americans, our identity can be tied up in what we do and how well we're doing it. We're never satisfied with another promotion. You guys experience that? Get a promotion or some accolade or award, some recognition, and like 10 minutes later, it's on to the next one. What can I do to get the next one? We're never able to turn our work off, replying to email at all hours. We're extremely reticent to go on vacation, because if I leave, then who will get the work done? Well, the Proverbs have plenty to say to you as well. Proverbs 23, 4, and 5, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. Everything that we work for, everything that we work for, that we can accumulate, just pile up and sit on for ourselves, it just is there and then it's gone. Like a sandcastle. The tide comes in, this beautiful, immaculate thing that you work so hard to create, and then there's no trace left of it. Not saying that we shouldn't pre prepare, we shouldn't plan wisely for our future. We'll have plenty to say about that in a minute. But just as the gospel is meant to awaken us out of our self-centered laziness, to give meaning to our work, the gospel also keeps us from putting too much hope, 
too much identity in what we do because it has already been done. You see, for 33 years, Jesus worked tirelessly. He built things out of wood with his hands as a service to others. If that doesn't come as motivation to like, actually do excellent work, things with your hands, I don't know what will. Jesus, you think about that? Jesus used a hammer and nails. He built tables and stuff. And I'm sure he did it excellently as a way of worship unto the Lord. He learned the scriptures. He meditated on them day and night. He obeyed and delighted in the will of his Father. He never like, man, I've had a really great week of obedience. I'm just going to take a night for myself. I deserve, I deserve this. He never took a night off. He spent his hours and his days with the poor, teaching his disciples. And then he finally rolled up his sleeves, turned his face to Jerusalem, and he went to work. He came down to the city where he was taken. He was willingly put to a place of public mockery and shame. He was flogged, beaten. He was hung on a cross to suffocate. And after 33 years of work, of obedience, of suffering, then he finally exhaled, his work now completed, and said, it is finished. It's finished. My, my work for them. My work for the sacrifice of your sins. And this Sabbath rest is the rest that Genesis 2, where God rested after his first work week, was pointing to all along. That Israel, every week of their existence, was pointing to, was preparing for. And this Sabbath rest is not just something that the triune God gets to experience. Through the gospel of Christ, he offers it to us as well. He invites us into the rest that the triune God experiences. And the author of the letter to Hebrews says, in Hebrews 4, 9, and 10, he says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. He doesn't give us this rest so that we can now kick up our feet in laziness. He doesn't give us this rest so that we can kick up our feet in sinful disobedience and just assume, well, it's finished, so he's just going to forgive whatever I do, so I might as well do whatever I want to do. No. As it's often said, the difference that the gospel makes is not I obey and therefore I'm accepted. I work so that I can achieve. No, I am accepted, so therefore I obey. Because it's been achieved, now I can work unto the Lord with great meaning and with excellence. So even though Christians are no longer bound by the Sabbath, this was a sign of the old covenant, and unlike the other nine commandments, the command to honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, this command is never reaffirmed in the New Testament because that day has found its fulfilled purpose in the rest of Christ. So nevertheless, even though we're not bound by the Sabbath, regular and ongoing Sabbath rest, especially as Americans, is such a necessary thing for us, just to remind ourselves, weekly or regularly, that I am not the captain at the helm of the cosmos. The world and the universe keep spinning because God is at work there. While my taking exams, while my making sales, changing endless diapers, or making another latte, filing another TPS report. All of these do have meaning as unto the Lord in taming chaos and cultivating dominion. There isn't any amount of work that will finally 
let me feel like I've arrived. I've made it. Now I have meaning in my life. Myself and my work is not the universe's center of gravity, but God's is. So it's good. It's good to turn off the emails in the evening. It's good to keep ourselves from needing to go into the office on Friday and Saturday nights just to put out more fires that only you can fix. And it's especially good to take a couple of weeks off every year, if your employer allows it, uh, to just turn it off, to remind ourselves that God is at work and I don't have to be, that my identity is found in Christ and that my work doesn't save me. Or as Proverbs 15, 16 says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. We need constant reminders because we live on this side of Genesis 3. We need constant reminders because the ground fights back at our cultivating efforts where individual and systematic sin make work necessary, perhaps even more necessary. We need constant reminders where we sin and worship the wrong things in our lives. Well, I've already answered our last question in a lot of ways, but if in thinking through all this, is how God thinks about work, that it is good, it is cultivating, beautifying, pushing back on chaos, and then how we wrongly think about work, how we can tend to think it doesn't have any meaning or all of the meaning. How should we think about work? Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. Where we read, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. If you do recognize yourself as a sluggard, and all of us, to some degree or other, should see some uh, glimmers of being a sluggard in our life, then for God's glory and for your own joy, for wisdom's sake, consider the ant. They're self-disciplined. They don't show up late. They don't take breaks. They self-initiate. They don't need mom or dad to come and tell them to get out of bed for the 20th time. They don't even need like an annual or a once every two or three year sermon to motivate them to work hard. They, just, they internally know their calling. They know that their work is good and necessary. They are Wally. Man, I love that movie. I love Wally. He's a hard worker every day. He seemingly isn't accountable to anyone. There's no one checking up on him. He just wakes up every morning, goes out, and creates order where there is only chaos. He isn't burnt out by monotony. This little robot just wakes up and goes. He works. Compared to the people in this movie, right? The people are slobs. Everything has to be delivered to them. They're completely sedentary, not producing anything. We, in an animated movie learn to despise human laziness. And it's only when they learn to stand up that finally the plot begins to move forward. But the ant and Wally are excellent examples for us to consider, for us to model, for us to emulate. The ant is self-disciplined, self-initiating. They're hard workers. Ants can carry a hundred times their body weight. That's unbelievable. And when you are out at the hot August picnic, wishing that you could just get back inside, complaining about being outside, 
The ants aren't complaining. They're just dutifully marching off with the Fritos and the Oreo crumbs, right? They're just, they're working. They understand their future and they work accordingly. They know that winter is coming. They don't take weeks and weeks off. They're not procrastinating so that they have to cram right there at the end. They don't put off reading and storing God's word in their heart. So that when winter comes, they have nothing to put their hope in. We don't see it in the text, but they are unselfish. They work for the good of the colony. Just observe the ant, right? There are scouts out everywhere. And the minute one of them finds a place of food, he makes a beeline back to the bed to tell everybody. And then all these other worker ants, they go out to find the food and bring it back. Some of them stay back. They're taking care of the, the bed. They're receiving the food that is coming in. There are some that are always tunneling and building. They all know their jobs. They're working excellently, and they're doing it for the good of others and for the good of the colony. Is this you? Like in a, in a Philippians 2 type way, especially if you're a member of this church, that you are considering the needs of others to be more important than yourself, that you are not only looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Beginning to think of ourselves not as the main character, but as a supporting character for all of you, as a belonging member, of, uh, 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 just an essential member of the colony. None of us are perfect ants. We never will be, but we can look, observe, learn and change. We can observe and change by the power of the Spirit, especially especially if we keep reading in Proverbs 6. And if instead of seeing glimmers of the ant in ourselves, instead, verses 9 through 11, they still continue just to hit a little bit too close to home. Proverbs 6, 9, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? How, when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The sluggard is lying there, just rolling back and forth. Even when he wakes up, he's just folding his hands back on his chest for just five more minutes. An insect is living out his calling more obediently than we do. This is, ah, this is convicting. Look and learn, observe and change. Your laziness, my laziness is ignoring is refusing to be like or echo our creator in his good work. So get home and fix that leaky faucet today. It's just causing so much chaos in your house. You've gotten used to it. It used to drive you nuts. You put it off for a couple days and now it's just reality. Fix it. Create some order in your home. Keep changing those diapers. Keep changing them. Keep folding that laundry. Not for the approval of Facebook or Instagram, or for someone else in your house, but as unto the Lord who sees you, who observes, who cares, and who loves you, keep pushing back on that endless, relentless, often disgusting curse and chaos in your house. Do your schoolwork with excellence. Study with excellence and hard work and with integrity. Go serve your roommates today. Vacuum the house Clean the kitchen. Stop waiting on others to do it for you. If you're still in your parents' house, if you're old enough and they'll allow it, go get a job. Like, make some money, but not just for yourself. 
Cultivate order. Bring beauty. Cultivate a better city in which we as Christians, but even those who aren't loving and trusting in Christ can live in. Read a book. Read your Bible. Go on a hike and just enjoy him. But remember, this can't just be a pep talk. It can't just be a, all right, go get them, people. Work real hard this week without first understanding why. We work not to gain God's approval. We pursue excellence not so that God will finally think that I am excellent. We are anything but excellent. We are sluggards. Literally rolling back and forth in our bed, metaphorically rolling back and forth in just meaningless work, refusing to obey, refusing to worship our Father. Now we work because there was one who first worked perfectly, diligently, with excellence. Jesus, like the ant, he worked in self-discipline, removing himself to pray early in the morning and late at night. He was self-initiating. He didn't need other people to give him pep talks. Come on, Jesus, you can do it. Persevere. No, he was self-initiating. He worked hard for God's glory. He understood his future. He understood his purpose. And he worked accordingly to plan, to prepare for the winter that was coming of his own life. And he moved toward that purpose. He unselfishly worked for the good of his colony, his people, his bride, laying down his interests, laying down his desires, laying down his life for you. Are you trusting in his life and his death and his resurrection on your behalf? Are you trusting in his work for your laziness, in his righteousness for your sin, in his life for your death? When we understand and trust in his work rather than our own, something that can't be added to, something that we can't work hard enough to add to, now God begins to change and transform our hearts. Now he begins to give us meaning when we leave this place. It gives us a story that began somewhere that we royally just messed up. We have messed up this story, this job that he has given us to work every day of our existence. But now God is redeeming the story, restoring it, giving it new meaning. For those of us in Christ, he's given us a job not just to go and make disciples, to teach them everything that he has commanded, but he has given us areas of dominion, of domain, to work and keep these areas as unto him, that whatever we do matters because it's him who called us to it. So we work. We don't worship our work, but we worship God in our work that we might feel his pleasure. We are, God is pleased because of the work of Christ. We can rest confidently in his work. And now go here in all areas of our life, in tightening pipes, in pulling weeds, in folding laundry, in making lattes tomorrow. Whatever we do, work, not unto men, but as unto the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the work that you have done, not only to create, not only to create the universe, to create us as your little sub-rulers on this world, but in the work that you have done to accomplish our redemption, to bring lazy, self-centered sluggards, rebels against your kingdom, 
into your family, into your family as adopted sons and daughters of the high king of heaven, the inheritance to which we now lay claim to because of the work of Christ on our behalf. Lord Jesus, thank you for your work. Thank you for not being lazy, for not taking a day, even a moment of sinful disobedience. Had you done this, we would have no hope, but you have worked for us, for the glory of the Lord. Might we trust in it, in your work, your life, your death, and your resurrection even more, so that now we can go out confidently from this place with new meaning to work, to work excellently, not as to men, but unto you. We pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen.